1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In Hong Kong, students' voices are getting quieter. Authorities have been invoking the sweeping year-old national security law to shut student unions down and shut students up. Academic freedom is just the latest kind under threat in the territory. And alcohol-free beers used to be pretty awful. But with more abstemious customers, the big brewers are making it ever more palatable. And they see opportunity positioning it as a kind of adult soft drink, rather than just a sop to the designated driver. First up, though, The stroke of midnight on what was dubbed Freedom Day in Britain last week, clubbers hit the dance floor, starting what is in effect a grand epidemiological experiment watched by the world. Restrictions on the size of gatherings, social distancing and masks all lifted. This weekend, a major music festival called Latitude happened in the county of Suffolk with 40,000 attendees.
2: Yeah, right on, first day.
1: The unlocking is powered by a belief in the strength of Britain's vaccination campaign. Although deaths remain low and cases have fallen from a peak last week, nearly 30,000 people a day are still catching COVID and 5,000 people are hospitalized. The architect of this bold plan is Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who has, as of this weekend, been in office for two years.
2: The doubters, the doomsters, the gloomsters, they are going to get it wrong again. Our
1: British politics columnist, Adrian Wooldridge, hardly knows what grade to give for the Prime Minister's performance, but appropriately, he puts it in the way Mr. Johnson's alma mater, Oxford University, does. Alpha versus gamma. And there's plenty of work to mark.
2: This was, quite frankly, an extraordinary, hectic two years. He's prorogued Parliament, for which he was rebuked by the Supreme Court. He's expelled 21 grandees from the Conservative Party, costing him his majority, and he's been re-elected with a massive majority. If you look at his life personally, he's had a child, he's divorced his second wife, he's married his third wife, he almost died of COVID-19. So there's been no rest.
1: And amid all of that, how do you think Mr. Johnson has done?
2: People say of Boris that he's a Marmite politician, that people either really like him or really hate him. But I think it's also just as true to say that he's an alpha-gamma politician. When he's good, he's really, really good. And when he's bad, he's really, really bad. And he doesn't seem to have anything in the middle of that.
1: Well, let's start with the good side. Where do you see his strengths as a, as a political mind?
2: Well, there are two really important things that he did. One was to grasp the importance of what happened in the global financial crisis. He grasped that something really big had changed about global politics, which was that the old neoliberal order, the Washington consensus, had really collapsed. It had lost its legitimacy. It has lost its popularity. And this was creating the space for a very new sort of political regime, a new political settlement. Even before that, he understood that politics is changing, that the old party structures are weakening and that there is room for a new politics based on celebrity on cultivating your fan base on creating a charismatic identity for yourself
1: and conversely where 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 does the, the the gamma part come in where does the incompetence part come in
2: there are all too many gammas really i mean he is capable of the most extraordinary mistakes he promised to get brexit done but then he got all of the details related to a northern irish border He just brushed them under the carpet as though they didn't matter, and that's going to cost the country a great deal. He was very slow to respond initially to Covid, and there's been all sorts of slapdash things. Last week, his right-hand man, who had helped to guide him to power, Dominic Cummings, gave an extraordinary interview to Laura Koonsberg, the BBC's political editor, saying essentially that he was unfit for office.
3: He's unusual in a lot of politicians' in having a sort of odd self-awareness mode, that he kind of knows in all sorts of ways that it's ludicrous for him to be in that position. He said that to me a
2: few times. He ricochets, really, between great understanding and great feats of insight and absolutely abysmal conduct.
1: And as for what's widely described as an experiment rather than a policy, the lifting of restrictions in Britain now, which end of things is this on, the brilliant or the incompetent end?
2: Britain is engaged in a very bold experiment at the moment of opening up. I think the boldest experiment in the world. And the reason for this is quite sensible. The reason is that about 95% of people over the age of 60 have been vaccinated. So the thinking is that we have to go to work sometime. Why not make use of this window created by vaccinations to go back to work? But the problem is, of course, that even if you have two vaccines, you're not exempt from getting COVID. And the disease, particularly the Delta variant, is circulating in the populations. Now what we have is something called the ping epidemic, whereby huge numbers of people who were told that they were going to be free are being pinged by their NHS app, i.e. told that they have been in contact with somebody who has covid and have to go back to isolating again for 10 days. So in fact, I think it's actually incompetence.
1: So why then, given that uncertainty and those risks, why do you think Mr. Johnson's government has been so keen to to just completely lift the lid?
2: I think there are two things going on. One is that Johnson is instinctively a libertarian. He wants to go back to normal. He doesn't want the country to be bossed around by a bossy government. But secondly, and most importantly, I think that there is a group of activists on the right who are really against the lockdown. So this pressure is something that I think he's given into.
1: So so how do you sort of square these two sides, the brilliant and the incompetent? What, what gives rise to that, do you think?
2: Well, the brilliance and the incompetence are both rooted in the same psychological characteristics. And that's a problem because we cannot separate the two. One of those characteristics is he seems almost to thrive on chaos, that he was brought up in a very unstable home. His family moved about 32 times in his first 14 years. And he links that tolerance for chaos with a sort of congenital optimism. He always thinks things will come out best in the end. And he also believes in the power of charismatic individuals to shape history. You know, he underestimates the importance of structural forces or, or organizations and overestimates the power of individuals.
1: And, and how do those characteristics translate into a leadership style, do you think?
2: Well, one is a belief in himself. He always thinks that he, Boris, can solve problems which other people can't solve. Another is a tolerance for a very unbureaucratic way of doing things, very improvised solutions to everything. And I think these things explain both the highs and the lows of his politics. On the one hand, his belief in great individuals solving everything explains his very sensible decision to bring in a venture capitalist, Kate Bingham, and give her almost unlimited power to solve the vaccine supply problem, which he did brilliantly. But it also explains his failures. You know, the fact that he accepted this line down the Irish Sea without seeing its massive political consequences explains his refusal to grasp COVID as a problem initially. And I think it also explains his failure to create an administrative system capable of dealing with COVID. It was all a series of ad hoc improvisations rather than the invention of a new sort of government for a new era. And one of the biggest problems with his optimism is the problem of Scottish nationalism.
1: What do you mean by that?
2: Scottish nationalism could tear the country apart. We could quite simply see the end of the United Kingdom. And he really thinks, I think, that this is a problem which will dissolve and disappear if we can wait it out. And I think that's profoundly wrong. It's a movement that's been gathering force for a long time, has created its own institutions. It's a force that's run by very patient people who have used the power of administration to create almost a parallel regime in Scotland. And it won't disappear just with a few blustering words.
1: And looking through that lens toward the future, what do you foresee for the rest of his tenure?
2: The most important thing to grasp is that you can't get the alpha without the gamma, that there are always going to be terrible things associated with Boris. There's always going to be a mess. There's always going to be chaos. There's always going to be disorder. But what worries me is I think that we're getting more and more of the gamma and less and less of the alpha. What we need now is the slow bedding down of a new sort of political settlement and a new sort of political regime. And that requires really hard work. It requires making administrative decisions. It requires setting up new structures of power. It requires relentless application to the administration. So I suspect we'll have a future of more gammas and less and less alphas.
1: Adrian, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you very much indeed.
1: After Britain ceded control of Hong Kong nearly a quarter century ago, its universities remained free-spirited bastions of liberalism. Students have been at the forefront of pro-democracy protests that have periodically rocked the territory, most dramatically two years ago. Good evening. In Hong Kong,
2: hundreds of activists remain under siege inside the Polytechnic University, where there's been more violence today as police try to keep the campaigners trapped inside. Outside
1: the then they seemed them. fearless, even when it looked possible that mainland troops might be deployed to quell the unrest.
2: For a few minutes today, it looked like the siege of Hong Kong Polytechnic University might end peacefully. But seconds later, riot police began firing tear gas grenades, sending the young protesters scattering in confusion.
1: Now those students are gripped by fear, as authorities again invoke a broad but vague national security law imposed by Beijing a year ago. First, it was overt flag-waving activists arrested under the law. Then it was pro-democracy media. Now the law has come for universities, their students, and their unions, quieting some of the territory's last liberal voices.
4: On July 16th, police raided the offices of the Student Union at the University of Hong Kong, which has put a real gloom over the whole of the campus.
1: Su Lin Wong is a China correspondent for The Economist and is based in Hong Kong.
4: The reason given for the raid was that the city's police chief said some of the Student Union leaders may have breached the national security law that China imposed on Hong Kong in 2020.
1: And we've talked a lot about the the effects of that law. What, What exactly is being alleged here?
4: So one thing the law covers is terrorism, which is extremely broadly and vaguely defined. But that was what the student union was accused of inciting. So the trigger was a statement made by the student union. They issued a motion that expressed gratitude for the sacrifice of a man who stabbed a police officer before killing himself. And the government said this statement amounted to supporting terrorism. The union subsequently apologised and its leaders resigned. But the police did not let the matter rest and raided the student union. And local reports say that some of the student union leaders now have exit bans on them, so they're unable to leave Hong Kong.
1: And when we've spoken in the past about this law, it's often used as a pretext to go after people that authorities already have their eye on.
4: Yes, indeed. And the Chinese Communist Party has long had its eye on Hong Kong student unions, who have for many years been at the core of Hong Kong's democracy movement. University students were at the center of pro-democracy protests in 2019. And in fact, two of the most violent confrontations happened on university campuses. And in 2019, I remember speaking to my sources who said that Communist Party officials had come from mainland China to Hong Kong to study these student unions. And they conducted extensive interviews with academics in Hong Kong and other residents. And they wanted to know all kinds of details, like how are student union leaders elected and how are these unions funded and what is their connection to the broader democracy movement in Hong Kong? And at the time, I thought that was extremely worrying for the future of these student unions because it implied that the Communist Party was trying to do as much research as possible in order to plan a clampdown in the future. And now that day has come.
1: So what effects has that had on the university sector?
4: So broadly, I think there's, there's a real climate of fear now on Hong Kong university campuses. And a lot of students are avoiding campus politics. In fact, in the course of my reporting, I realized that only one university in Hong Kong still has a functioning elected student union people are self-censoring and there are huge questions about the future of academic freedom in the city. So I interviewed several academics who said they're very worried about being reported on by their students or other faculty. And as a result, the academics said they will avoid certain topics. I think it's particularly tricky for lecturers who teach Hong Kong politics or Chinese history or topics like civil disobedience and democracy. And what they said to me is that they aren't necessarily worried about going to jail, but there are so many other ways that the authorities can retaliate.
1: And and what other ways are those?
4: So there have been many reports of outspoken lecturers being denied tenure or being denied promotions or being denied funding to continue their research or being denied contract extensions. I mean, the academics I spoke to said that the university management never says it's political. They always find another reason, you know, your research isn't up to scratch, for example. But There is a real sense that if you are an academic in Hong Kong right now and you talk a lot about the importance of civil liberties and freedom and democracy in Hong Kong, there is a a risk that the university management will come after you.
1: So whether by active or I guess the sort of passive effects, academic freedom in Hong Kong really doesn't look very healthy.
4: Not at all. And in fact, there is an academic freedom index that is calculated by several universities and think tanks in Europe. And in 2010, Hong Kong ranked in the highest category of academic freedom on this index. By 2018, it had dropped to a grade C, so the middle category, and it's now a grade D. So it's still slightly above mainland China, which is in the very bottom category, grade E. But it's one place in the world that has seen the fastest decline in academic freedom over the past five years.
1: And that must be difficult for the academics whose worlds have have shifted so rapidly in the past few years.
4: Yes. One point that I kept hearing from academics I spoke to was that there's a real sense of despair and sadness amongst them and their colleagues because they deeply believe in academic freedom and they don't want to be a part of an institution. You know, these world-class universities that are now proactively stifling dissent.
1: Thanks very much for your time, Sulin.
4: Thanks very much, Jason.
1: For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence The link is in the show notes. For the 10,000 years or so that it's been around, beer has been relied upon both to refresh and to intoxicate. But around the world, beer consumption is falling. The world's mightiest brewers can no longer rely on the full-strength stuff to boost growth.
3: We created Carlsberg Zero Zero because even the best things can be better Where alcohol-free beer. Ah. Clean, one-handed, backhand is better. Balancing stuff is better.
1: So the industry is pinning its hopes on alcohol-free beer.
3: Beers with no or with very little alcohol content have been sold for decades. But traditionally, they've been aimed at people who want to drink but can't drink.
1: Stanley Pignol writes about European business, finance, and economics for The Economist.
3: Marketers at the major breweries treated them as distressed purchases. They were sold under their own brands, uh, kind of second, third tier brands, far removed from the big marketing budgets of a a Budweiser or a Heineken or a Natahi. And a big reason for that was that, you know, even the brewers admitted that alcohol-free beer just tasted flat. It it just wasn't a very good product. And that's what started to change.
1: And how are brewers making their alcohol-free beers taste better?
3: Well, the brewers really don't like to talk about it in in any detail, but what we know is that it seems to involve basically taking a finished alcoholic beer and then stripping away the booze, Um, which is interesting because actually making a 0.0 beer is actually more expensive uh, than making a straight-up Stella, but the brewers no longer have to pay excise duties on 0.0 beer. Uh, And that is usually a big chunk of the cost associated with beer. So given that for now, consumers appear to be willing to pay roughly the same price, whether a beer contains alcohol or not, the upshot is that the margins on alcohol-free beer are really quite good. And that's part of the reason why we're seeing such a huge marketing push from the brewery majors. And how much
1: room is there to move? I mean, how big is the alcohol-free market anyway?
3: Well, beer that's entirely alcohol-free continues to be niche. Uh, only about 2.4% of beer sold globally this year will be entirely non-alcoholic, uh, according to Euromonitor, which looks to the industry. But that's still up from about 1.5% a decade ago. So it's growing, unlike alcoholic beer. So even before the pandemic shut the bars down and the clubs down, uh, beer was losing what the industry calls share of throat Uh, to other types of alcohol. And in general, drinking is coming down. You've seen lots of studies showing how young people aren't aren't boozing as heavily as their parents used to. And that's what prompted the major brewers globally to try and crack how to make alcohol-free beer taste better.
1: So that's it. Now that they've cracked the taste and there seems to be some demand for it, we'll just expect an enormous marketing push.
3: Yeah. And and it's part of a broader strategy. Brewers have long worried that beer is a kind of a male product, a very laddish product, kind of stuck in the 80s, football fans just getting plastered. And what they would ideally like is to have much more segmentation of beer, like you do in wine, for example. You know, there are cheaper wines and there are more expensive wines, depending on the occasion. So having more variants, having more different types of beer, for example, craft beers, which also became very popular and now alcohol-free beers, That all helps broaden the offering. Even better from the brewer's point of view is they can reposition alcohol-free beer as not beer at all, but just as a soft drink, as a kind of premium soft drink.
1: You you mentioned craft beer there, and um, as a fairly beer-focused publication, we've talked about the rise and rise of craft beers in in recent years. Where do they fit into this picture?
3: The alcohol-free beer thing is tough for craft brewers, actually. Craft beers start off with lots of booze but they also tend to be made in small batches from which stripping away alcohol is is more complicated. It's certainly kind of not not economical. So the big brewers that make, you know, entire swimming pools of beer every day, they think they have an edge in making alcohol-free beer. So it's interesting, we've kind of come full circle, right? A few years ago, everybody was pushing consumers to much heavier, much more alcoholized craft beers. And now we're being pushed the other direction towards beers with no alcohol. So it's a kind of refreshing change.
1: Stanley, thanks very much for joining us, and cheers.
3: Thank you. Cheers.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and we'll see you back here tomorrow.